Welcome to this episode of The Last Optimist. I'm Mark Mills, and we're going to talk today about oil and gas again, oil and natural gas, that is. Uh, and it's in the news still for obvious reasons. Uh, Russia is one of the biggest, actually the second biggest producer of oil and gas combined after the United States. We are in a uh, terrible mess. I'm not going to talk about the politics, but we all know that the solutions to the entanglement with respect to the challenges in embargoing, banning, or sanctioning Russian oil and gas are severe because of the scale of Russia's supply to the world. So we have two camps uh, that have solutions. One uh, I'll call the double downer camp. These are the uh, pundits and policymakers who want to double down on alternative energy, mainly solar and wind and batteries to reduce the use of hydrocarbons. And they, they, they are saying we should do that because it both addresses the climate challenge and also the Russia challenge. And then we have what we might call the drill baby drill camp uh, who want to expand production, especially domestic American production to delink de economies from dependence on Russian oil and gas. Look, uh, the bottom line is we're going to need both. Uh, the timing for both is going to be a challenge. Uh, for calibration, let's just keep in mind two facts that I've talked about previously, but it's worth repeating them. Uh, the International Energy Agency's aspirational forecast to go beyond the Paris plan, call it the double down plan. Even if the world were to do that, and the world is not doing that or funding it, but even if it were to do that, according to the IEA's own forecast, while that would reduce today's level of dependence on oil and gas, it would still leave the world 30 years from now using more hydrocarbons than we did in the year 2000. Yes, that would be less than we use today, but it's still a lot of oil and gas. It would still supply about half of all the world's energy needs. So the key question we have to have in mind, even if you're embracing the double down path, is where does that oil and gas come from? Who produces it? How do we keep it inexpensive? Why would we want half of all our energy supply to become as expensive as it's becoming already? Do we? And if oil stays in $100 a barrel range and north of that, do we want that, that money flowing to OPEC and Russia? Or do we want it flowing into our allies in Canada, uh, our friends in South America, and to American producers? And wouldn't we like it to be at a third of that cost rather than at double today's cost? So the key is, even if you're in the double downer camp, we have to find enough energy to supply civilization. A lot of it's going to have to be oil and gas. And the central feature of getting more oil and gas is a technology question. Of course, there's a political question. Of course, there's a regulatory issue. But the central reality is getting more energy of any kind is always about technology. We didn't create oil and gas, human beings. We didn't create the wind or sun. We have to invent machines, technologies, to convert natural resources into useful forms. It's always about technology. Yes, the technology features are inextricably tied to political, social, environmental issues. Of course they are. None of those are easy or trivial, but everything begins with what we can actually do with technology, technology that we can scale at, to meet the needs of humanity and at prices we can afford. And when it comes to technology, the most important new class of technology that will tell us something about the future, what's possible to produce more oil and gas, produce any kind of energy, are the technologies of automation, both virtual automation, software, and physical automation, robots, virtual robots, and physical robots. This is the single biggest change in the uh, technology and industrial technology world of all time, frankly. It's what my book is about again, the cloud revolution. And when it comes to global energy supplies, what we wanna understand is what could technology, what could, what could the virtual robots software and what could the physical robots, the robots that automate, both semi-automate and fully automate physical operations, what can they do? And importantly, what can they do in the two regions that matter the most in terms of global oil and gas production? The deep water production fields, the technologies of deep water, the offshore fields, those oil rigs that are in the global oceans, they constitute, if they were a country, one of the biggest sources of oil and gas to the world, in fact, nearly one third of all of the world's oil and gas are supplied from deep water rigs. This is an area where technology is utterly critical. 
And then the second critical field, of course, are the shale fields of America, which I've talked about before. The American shale fields onshore have added more new oil and gas production, more energy production to the world than any single feature of the energy market in all of time. And again, to put this in relative terms, the American shale revolution of the past 10 or 15 years has added 300% more energy. Just the American shale revolution has added 300% more energy to the world's supply system than all of the planet's wind and solar facilities combined. The addition from those, those have been substantial, the latter, the wind and solar, but America's shale fields have done far more. So the question should we, we should be asking today is, could we do more from both those huge domains? Could we get more energy from using the technologies of the future automation uh, from the deep waters of the world? And can we get more energy from the shale fields by using virtual robots and software? To answer that question, I'm going to be joined today in this episode by two experts, two leading edge uh, founders of companies in each domain. For the exploration of what's possible with respect to physical robots in the, in, the, in the deep blue oceans, we'll be talking to Nick Radford, founder and CEO of Nauticus Robotics. And to talk about the virtual robots, the machines that can make us smarter make us work more with greater precision and faster and increase productivity and reduce impacts. We're going to be talking to John Ludwig, the founder and president of Novi Labs. John's company has developed an artificial intelligence, or if, as you know, I prefer the phrase intelligent automation. It's a cloud-based platform to add efficiency and cut costs. By way of full disclosure, which I'll remind you all of is that, uh, of course, the second case in John's company's case, I have I have a dog in the race. The fund that I'm a part of is an investor. We don't control the company. Uh, we're not the majority investor, but we do have a we do have a stake, which is why I know John. And with that, uh, let's turn to our first guest. So Nick, uh, we got to start with just the high level. What what in the why in the world did you do this? You started at NASA, you know, uh, building robots for them. And you went from outer space to deep, deep space, if you like, in the subsurface. What, what, what got you? Why did you start this? G- give us the, you know, the few minute snapshot of your imagineering. Well, Mark, I love speaking with you every time we do, because uh, our conversations always get cut off, it seems. Uh, <laughs> cut short. I won't cut you off, Nick. You're good to go. <laughs> We're usually we usually are ending a workday or or something because we can. Uh, it's so much fun to speak with you. So thank you for having me on on your show, and and it's such a pleasure. Uh, yeah, I spent uh, along with a lot of other talented uh, engineers. Uh, we we sort of came out of university and and got into the NASA ecosystem, and I found myself uh, quickly rising through the technical management ranks there and was able to be in charge of, of a, a pretty significant slice of NASA's uh, humanoid robotics uh, portfolio for low Earth orbit and moon and Mars missions. And it was just the most tremendous place that anyone could ever hope to start a career, just with the people you work around and, and the, just the looking up inspiration of, of, of outer space. It's, it's just... Uh, it's motivating on every level. But along the way, uh, I discovered, um, you know, there'd be people come to the lab and they would be representatives from all over the industries. And, and inevitably, somebody would say, have you ever thought about taking this kind of technology underwater? And the first couple of times you hear something like that, you sort of brush it off. And, you know, in a small little NASA arrogant way, you're like, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm designing a robot that's going to walk around on Mars, um, you know, kind of busy at the moment. And um, what we had at NASA was this tremendous understanding of how to put a robot in a faraway location uh, and get it to interact with the world around it. And what I ended up really putting together and discovering is that all of those principles and that, that space flight robotics architecture uh, was tremendously applicable to the, the ocean community, uh, especially on the, on the seabed. And so then I became rather obsessed with what the ocean economy was 
and uh, all of the things that transpired in, in it. Uh, oil and gas is, is one segment of that for sure. Yeah, but like yeah. the ocean economy by itself would be the seventh largest country on the planet. So, uh, you know, going back to your analogy of just how much the subsea require is responsible for our production. Um, so the blue economy, the ocean economy, it's tremendous. And so now I pivoted out of uh, government service. Um, Congratulations on that, Nick. I know. Right. It's like, you know, people, <laughs> people, I used to, I, I talk about it. Like I, I got out of prison, right. It's like, I, I talk about my time when I was in and. Uh, well, we don't want to be mean to, 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 as you well know, there's a lot of, and we, oh, we to be honest, if Air, you both, you and I both know a lot of terrific civil servants, but oh, for it, sure, for it, sure. But it's it's a lot of fun to make fun of government, mostly because of who runs the government, not who does <laughs> the work. Like, yeah, and, I, and, and it goes back to uh, I think there's no harsher critic on a smoker than an ex-smoker, <laughs> exactly. and uh, and so that's kind of the way I view my government service. But <laughs> to, to end this long-winded introduction, uh, the analogies were so stark between working in outer space robotically and underwater that as I looked into and scratched the surface, so to speak, on how people were doing things underwater, I said, we have an entire tool chest that can alter the way people are doing things uh, in this this environment. And as you pointed out earlier, people people looked at the underwater world with these platforms and vehicles and that they were these uh, these devices they were using to, to do stuff. And what a bunch of NASA roboticists decided to do is, is reimagine these devices and machines as actually robotic and robots, as opposed to what has really taken the form of more kind of heavy construction equipment. Exactly. Like well, and, and you're, you know, you and I talked about this before, but the, if, if you were picking sort of the one thing that's different about what you have to deal with in outer space that everybody understands and that people forgot about what, how you would deal with machines in the subsurface is you can't have a tether to the earth's surface uh, with the physics we know <laughs> to communicate, control, power, or operate something in outer space. You have to be semi-autonomous or fully autonomous and you can't have accidents. You can't have mistakes. I mean, all, all the things that we care about to make safe is space as safe as humanly possible, utterly critical subsurface, especially in thousands of feet of water with the stakes being so high. So what a, what a brilliant, I mean, these things in hindsight, what's fascinating to me, as soon as you said that to me, the first time we talked to me, I've learned over the, over the years of of talking to uh, brilliant imagineers. I think Disney's phrase was brilliant on this because you have to be both an engineer and have imagination and some engineers don't. I mean, they're great engineers, but they don't have imagination per se. And you don't always want engineers to have imagination. You want them to you just make it work. But the imagineering that you had here is incredible. Let, let, let me, let's cut to the, a technical question because I think it's relevant to think about why it's, it's the time for this to be real. And then we'll talk about what it means to have useful autonomy subsurface, useful robots. First, sort of high level, if I, and I, if I said to you, could you have built the Aquanaut? Could you have built this transformer, this robot 20 years ago? Could you have built it then 25 years ago? And what, or put differently, what are the sort of the key enabling maturations of technology? Because it's never an invention itself, it's my thesis, but rather a maturation of a couple of things or a few things in the toolkit that made it possible for you to imagine and then build. I'm not under, under, under appreciating the magnitude of the difficulties, but you still had to have the toolkit. So if you had to pick the two or three things that got to a level of maturity and make it possible, what, what are those? So it's interesting you keep using the phrase toolkit because our uh, software platform that powers all of our robotic devices underwater is called Toolkit. And, uh, and Nick didn't pay me to say this, by the way. Yeah, I know. I know. I was like, this is amazing. Mark, keep going. And, uh, you know, and it's funny enough, uh, with our, uh, upcoming transaction, um, our, our ticker on the NASDAQ will be kit K I T T. Oh, <laughs> uh, we should remind everybody, uh, that Nick is engaged in one of the, uh, new phrases in this, in the financial markets, a SPAC, 
special acquisition corporation where he will be going public through that kind of vehicle. And um, I don't now have, but you know, I, I also work as an investor. We don't have we don't have a dog in that race. I regret we don't personally because what a great company. But I will be able to join having a piece of the action once it's once it's publicly traded in a way that we can all buy. But that's just my opinion, not my not my investment advice. But anyway, carry on. Nick, I interrupted I interrupted you and I promised not to interrupt. So no, no, no worries, no worries. And uh so so Kit, uh kind of the coolest AI in my opinion ever. Because I mean, when you wrap a, an AI platform around, you know, uh, or when you wrap a black trans am with a screaming eagle on the hood um, and a flashing red light in front of it, um, you know, it's the coolest AI I can think of in the '80s. But really, what has changed is uh, the heart of your question. Because you've done this 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or something. You know, we're not the first people that wanted to hybridize uh, multiple forms of underwater vehicles and cut the cord. But what, what has occurred recently is the advancements in edge computing, um, driven, in my opinion, in large part by this self-driving car revolution, where we wanted to embed so much processing, so much sensing in a mobile platform and build up a framework of a robust decision-making. So we came out of this NASA ecosystem where this is something that was just ingrained and embedded into our brains. Um, but it takes a significant amount of processing to make these kind of decisions. I mean, at the heart of what we're talking about is a machine underwater that is a high degree of self-sufficient and self-directed behavior. In order to have that, uh, which is what our toolkit platform endows our machines with, in order to have that, you need to be able to image the 3D world around you uh, in frequencies and in, in modes that allow your autonomy engine to ingest that data make sense of it and make a decision. Well, that takes a tremendous amount of processing. And we had not at the time been able to pack that kind of edge computing into devices like this to make all of those uh, autonomous decisions um, possible. So uh, that's been instrumental, um, this sort of tipping point of, of the computer revolution. And, yeah. and I've, I've lost track of Moore's law or if we've renamed Moore to somebody else and we've hyphenated it or whatever, right? I mean, surely this thing has had to have broken down somewhere. But uh, one thing remains is that uh, my iPhone, um, you know, everybody likes to say, oh, wow, do you know your iPhone has more computing power than, than, the, than the Apollo program, you know, the Apollo spacecraft had <laughs> back in the day? And it's actually a little, it's a little, it's a little different than that. Your iPhone has more computing capability than all of NASA had. Well, uh, in fact, program. Your, your iPhone has more computing capability than the planet. <laughs> when, when John F. Kennedy launched, uh, announced the mission, the landing on the moon within a decade. In fact, to elaborate on where you are, because I think this is a key point that in fact, again, I'm, I'm self-serving. This is why we're doing the podcast key point in my book is the, the tipping point that occurred in compute power, both central and edge, is unprecedented in history. It's not just the Moore's Law progression itself, but it's the combination of Moore's Law, which in the 20 years since you imagineered the Aquanaut, were roughly at a millionfold more compute power in a cubic inch or whatever metric we want to use or per watt, because it has to be lower power and smaller size, highly robust and give you supercomputing capacity in, in, an, in an autonomous machine. So I, you, you've said what I've said other times and elsewhere that I'm thrilled about the autonomous car revolution, not because I think autonomous cars are going to be easy to do anytime soon. I think they're far further away than most people really understand and imagine. And the world's coming to re, that, that the engineering world is, and even the investment world is sort of figuring this out finally. But the pursuit of that, the spillover, in not just compute power and algorithms to use the compute power to, to see, but the collateral development of sensors, uh, motion sensors, position sensors, you know, force sensors, tactile, you know, to touch and feel, vision sensors, LIDAR, radar, all these things have been hypertrophied advances. And so you're sitting there with this great toolkit. I should, because no one can see the picture unless they're, you know, they can pause the podcast, go to the magic Dr. Google, look up what, what an Aquanaut looks like. It, it, when I called it a transformer, I should have said at the outset, what you've done is made a machine 
back can be the shape of a mini sob, which is the optimal say, shape for moving quickly in water. Water is a very resistant medium to go past in, and you got to preserve power. So we have the magical lithium batteries now available to the world, making not just Tesla's possible, but also the Aquanaut. But you have to conserve power. But then when you're on station at depth, it transforms itself into what looks like a, a, you know, a Marvel comic uh, robot with manipulators and arms and vision. And uh, it does tasks like turn valves, uh, cut things, move things, connect things. And that, that is really remarkable, truly remarkable. Yeah, I think it, it has taken, um, it, it was obvious in some ways, but as you mentioned earlier, uh, non-obvious in others. Uh, because, uh, you know, DARPA wasn't the first group working on self-driving cars, contrary to popular belief, right? Grand Challenge uh, back in 2004, 2005. Well, they sort of just organized the community of people that were already really hard at work on this problem. Well, that's and, the, to, not to, 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 but to add, a, that's DARPA's genius, as yes, you know. Exactly exactly the genius of and if people understood how darpa really worked they'd apply it more sensibly to other domains but carry, mm -hmm. carry on so so the self-driving car revolution was kind of more or less kick-started in organization by darpa and you know and our first thing you know the first <laughs> the first year of that they didn't they weren't terribly successful but you know then they then they were able to um highlight uh heights both on how far we have to come and then also how capable the machines are and, and then they did the urban challenge after that. And so, okay, let's see if we can drive through a city. But what was some of the most interesting outcrops of that entire competition was the sensing, right? It was the LIDAR equipment. It was how do we get LIDAR to the, to the you know, back then, LIDAR was $25,000 a sensor, right? And it, it, it help our listeners who don't know LIDAR, that's laser-based radar using, using microscopic solid-state lasers to do what radar does, but to do it at the resolution that light can do it as opposed to radio exactly. waves. So now you have devices like that in auto, you know, automotive quality devices that can be produced uh, at an economy where someone can purchase that for their car, right? And so that was one of the tremendous leaps that came out of the Grand Challenge, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, you're so, right. So in, in the same vein uh, for us, uh, we had to say, um, we think we can bridge the gap between being able to operate this machine with enough sensing and enough communication to it so that an operator doesn't need to use a joystick to our Aquanaut. They can use a mouse click. Okay. And uh, that was because so much terrestrial sensing had been developed that we we said, okay, we need to create high-frequency point cloud imagery. We need to be able to fuse that to optical disparity maps. We need to be able to do this. We need to be able to do that. Then we need to be able to compress that, transmit it back over an acoustic latent network. Then we need to be able to reconstruct that to the to a UI and a user interface, UI for an operator. And um, we connected those pieces together because we had had to solve very similar challenges. And we were so connected to... I would say other technology efforts, just like the grand challenge yep. that I said, we can package all of that up, shove it into a machine, cut the umbilical. And as soon as you cut the umbilical, you do not, uh, you, you can't with, you can't deal with the fact that this is a, that the typical robot that plays with stuff underwater looks like a box. Yeah. If we cut the umbilical, yeah. we'd like to transit that thing far. Well, the other robot that goes far looks like a torpedo. Yeah. which is ill-conditioned to stop moving and do something. So the eureka moment was, for the first time, we had all the major puzzle pieces sort of understood. And we talk a lot about the software, but there was a lot of hardware morphology uh, that, you know, high-power high electric actuation. Right. As soon as you cut the cable, you, you can't do anything hydraulically. Right, right. Yeah. And what so people, that people don't recognize or know, but as soon as you say it, it's clear. Tethered vehicles that can go down uh, miles below the surface of the earth have cables that weigh tons. tons. And it, it's, a, it's a huge problem. But let's, let's go to this. It's not an imagination. You've got Aquanauts. They're fielded now, which means 
in, in and I'm gonna put, you have to correct me in, in in simplistic terms. You're at the what I would call the pre-commercial tipping point. Uh, pre-commercial for me is always the commercial commercial level of design and development is fielded. In your case, it's in the water, not on a road, mm-hmm. which puts you on the tipping point now to realization for products that can go into markets and get get used. Yeah. So, I can, am I right where you are? That's in characterizing it, and then it and it and then the second part is describe to our audience your broad brush how you see this impacting the two features of deep water, which are relevant mm-hmm. to oil and gas, of course, but also to all manner of things with respect to exploration and development use of the of the great blue oceans. How does it change the cost efficacy of doing this? That's the key thing. Go-to-market strategy on the company was very purposeful and took us about five years to execute. And the first phase of that was to align ourselves with more government interests. The governments uh, are really good at saying, hey, that didn't quite work right. Here's some more money. Try it again. They're also an excellent place to generate IP with because they've got some favorable IP uh, rights for, for performers. So it took us multiple years to really take and smash together all the elements that I was speaking about earlier in a practical and usable capacity that I had to use an early adopter support customer that um, wanted to see where this thing could end up if we poured a bunch of money into it. So I was able to raise some good corporate venture capital with long-term alignment towards the energy communities both in the traditional and the in the renewable segments. We then... And Nick, to be clear, but people understand here, it's a beautiful dual-use technology, not just for research, not just for oil and gas offshore, but for wind farms offshore, for any kind of ocean uh, infrastructure offshore, whether or even uh, m- deep-sea mining or exactly cable right. repairs and telecommunications. Yep, exactly. We're... we're I'm cognizant now, and, and you go into, the, and I agree with you, this is where government plays a very useful role. Exactly. They didn't invent this machine. You oh. invented it. You built it. You struggled in the blood and sweat to build a company. The government plays an incredibly useful role technologically and in terms of market validation. Now you sit on the cusp of true commercial insertion. If you're telling a customer who is thinking about trying something new, an autonomous subsea transforming robot. The sales pitch really distills to how much it changes their cost of operation, right? Yeah. And that's give, give us the ballpark. Obviously, uh, you, you, you know that uh, we're not making a representation about yep. what a specific fact is, but the general direction of cost savings. So I'll dovetail into that answer and, 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 and uh, finish up on the last one. So after that tremendous government support, and uh, some good money that we raised in the in the corporate venture and venture capital markets, um, we had we'd shown that all the use cases uh, were sound, and so then was the time to apply money on how to build out a fleet, yeah. uh, and that's the stage we're in. And we've attracted tremendous customer interest, and a lot of that's under contract, and that's really where our significant support comes from right now. Why is because of you know, the market responds in typically these three forces, right? You've got a technological force, uh, an economic force, and, and a social force. Yep. So uh, technology, we just spent the last 15 minutes talking about, we're there. Yep. Proven it, we're there. There's a number of macro reasons why. Uh, economically, this, uh, this service that we are offering using uh, Aquanon and robots in general, um, it's, it's less than half of of what other people pay today so there's enough step change in the cost of operation where the market uh sort of turned towards us and said that's interesting um now socially there's a lot of pressure to reduce emissions so now we have the confluence of those three major market forces which is really bubbling this sort of technology this this offering up to the surface and it is really important to to highlight and underscore the business model of the company we own and operate these machines and the service these machines perform is what we offer to the market. I'm not so, in the business of selling robots. I've been <laughs> in the robotics business a long time. And the quickest way to go out of business as a robotics company is to sell robots. Of course, as you know, the 
most industries uh, are increasingly service oriented, which is why I've written a lot about service bots. Uh, what you're doing is you're uh, renting a capability, you're uh, renting by the hour, by the job, but typically it's what help businesses think. I have to get something done. So if you cut in half the cost of operating subsurface, this, this is an extraordinarily impactful change in the economics of anything on deep water since you're always underwater. And so much of what you're doing is manipulation managed. By definition, the world's a world of atoms. We have to move stuff. Right. So, right. Do you, and, I, and I'm not trying to uh, blindside you on this. You may not know the answer to this question. If you're looking at a, a typical offshore deep water operation, uh, you can build some stuff onshore and float it out there, like the rig tops, right? This is true for anything. But what percentage ballpark of an operation does a, a deep water operator of any kind have to spend on subsurface stuff, services and hardware? Is it oh, half, 20%, 80%? What, where, where's where's your feeling the sense of that is? Oh, it's 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 like, it's north of 80%. Um, so, this feedback we've received um, is that, you know, even, even operations where you go out and you're just trying to do a survey, there's so much opportunistic intervention with the seabed or the water column. Yep. And, and even a lot of your inspection that you're doing underwater requires physical inspection. Of course. Literally, so, cameras, look, touch, feel. Exactly. I mean, the, 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 the multi-trillion dollar amount of infrastructure installed in our world's oceans is all rusting, so to speak. <laughs> Well, what a, we, what a shock! Like it's to, called salt, salt yeah, water. Exactly, I'm surprised. Yeah, and so we we like to measure the degrade, you know, how 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 you know what that corrosion de degradation is. So, in order to measure that, you have to hold a probe. You yeah. have to physically interact with the surface. It's a very simple operation, and right. this is really where our whole company became inspired, is because we looked at that, dissected it, and said, "Why does that have to cost what it does?" Because all you have to do is just take this probe, touch this point, take this measurement, and you have this enormous litany of, of infrastructure and cost involved with that because for one simple reason, no one understands how to operate these machines without looking at HD video and yep. using joysticks. It's a, it, you know, this is a good point to, to end on because the other issue you were raising, the, the trifecta of, of forces is social. One of the challenges that technology solves is the, we'll call it the environmental safety features of any, anything that we do industrially. And nowhere is this more important than in the subsurface, making it inexpensive to do maintenance and testing will have a radical improvement in the you know, ability to expand capacities there with lower, not, not, not a linear reduction, but a right. big step down. So I, Nick, this is... Um, I, it, I'll, I got to wrap it up. Uh, we could, uh, you and I could spend a day <laughs> just talking about robots and how we got to where we are and we're gonna, where we're going to go. Um, maybe people would listen uh, for the day. <laughs> Wouldn't but we'd matter. Have fun. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't matter because we'd have fun. We'd have fun. But I, I really appreciate you joining and I, I congratulate you again. That you're, you. You've, you've uh, proven the, the old adage that uh, it only takes about 20 years to have an overnight success. Exactly. And uh, I'm looking forward to watching from the sidelines as you have a uh, another launch over the next decade or two to becoming one of the preeminent robot service companies that will change the future. Thank you, Nick. And Mark, it's such an honor to speak with you, and it's always a pleasure. And uh, I had a lot of fun being on your show. Sorry, a little under the weather, um, but uh, would love to take you up on that offer and we could talk long into the night about technology. We'll do, we'll do another one. We're going to do more bots. We're not done with the robots, man. Thanks, oh. Nick. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. We've gone uh, in the digital and tech world from being obsessed with the big data uh, to being obsessed with artificial intelligence, to being frightened by both of them. There's a, there's a lot of data in the world. In fact, there's an infinite supply of data. The challenge with data is not just getting it, and sensors get better at it all the time, it's in using it. So the term data mining actually has meaning. Uh, it's it's uh, a way to use software to measure, analyze, and make sense of what goes on in the natural world and, or what's happening with machines operating the world 
and the machines we build and the systems we build. So in this sort of melee of uh, new technologies, we have this term, which is everybody's heard, artificial intelligence. Uh, it's confusing a lot of people. It's a term that has misdirection. Uh, it's like calling a car an artificial horse or an airplane an artificial bird. There's certainly some overlap that's very different than actual intelligence. I prefer the uh, new engineering phrase, relatively new, of intelligent automation when it comes to managing machines, whether they're physical or virtual. And of course, there's the term machine learning, which in fact is far more explanatory, has higher utility, sort of making sense of the world. So the key to, to, to assisting we mere humans in, in amplifying and understanding what complex data flows mean is to use powerful software and computers uh, to make sense of it all. And there's, there's no more complex space uh, in terms of data flows and the dynamics in the real world than in the kind of data that comes out of oil and gas and especially the business of uh, producing oil and gas from the shale fields. So the key to making people smarter, if you like, is to use smart software or put differently as my friend and colleague who um, we're about to hear from, John Ludwig would say, it's, and I'm paraphrasing, he can correct me. It's essentially to upskill your top performers. That's what the magic of software that's really good is it can make your best piece of machine, your, your rather your average machine operate as good as your best or your average field engineer operate like your best field engineer. Not everybody is the best. So it's, even though there are people like to think that way. So there's no better person to explain what machine learning, intelligent automation, uh, artificial intelligence means in the oil and gas business, especially for the future of that business. Now, as we think hard about how to expand American production again, then John Ludwig, who is the founder of Novi Labs. So John, let's start first with the full disclosure. Again, the, the fund that I'm a, a partner in, an investor in, has a, a stake in your great business. So I'm biased, but we don't control a company to say the least. And we just have, we have a stake in it by way of full disclosure. Amplify, if you would, this notion that you and I talked about, I think the first time we met, which is this confusion about what AI really is, artificial intelligence, what its utility is in an engineering field. And collaterally, how you came to this epiphany, given where you started, where were you, where you were before you started Novi Labs. Then we'll turn to that briefly, almost as briefly as <laughs> I introduced you. And uh, then we'll turn to what it means for the future uh, access to a cost of oil and gas. So John. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Great uh, intro, uh, uh, by the way, the checks in the mail uh, for, for that. But yeah, um, you know, we, we, Adobe, we, we've been working in uh, oil and gas and what we're really what we're really trying to do is use uh, machine learning or AI or whatever you'd like to call it uh, to help uh, amplify the skill sets of, of petroleum engineers. So our, our software is specifically on the advisory side of business, which essentially means before I drill a well, uh, how, how do I try to understand how it's going to perform? Because the, the investments are, are substantial. There's a whole other side to the business, which is the things that you can do with with AI and machine learning and intelligence in general to, to operate uh, the assets. So there's a distinction, a clear distinction between the two. The operation of the assets is more of a real-time uh, type of use case. Uh, the, uh, the work that you do, the analysis work that you do prior to drilling the well uh, is not a real-time use case. Uh, it's a plant. It's, it's typically done by reservoir engineers and planning folks and corporate finance and, and so on. Uh, so what we try to do uh, at Novi is bring uh, use use the use artificial intelligence and machine learning to combined with software to help customers build these advisory functions. Uh, so instead of human beings spending many many hours, weeks, and months uh, trying to build possible development scenarios like versions of the future, uh, essentially how they might um, uh, drill and complete wells, what companies they should potentially buy, all. All of those decisions are measured in the tens of millions, uh, typically. So what we try to do is, is extract the best insight we can uh, out of the data that is available, whether it's their data and or data that might be uh, in the public realm, 
uh, and build recommendation engines for them that they can tune themselves. So if you think uh, that wells might interfere with each other, if they're less than a thousand feet apart, our software allows you to configure that, which is kind of a tuning of the algorithm the engineer can do. So we've we found it's very important, uh, particularly on the advisory, on the planning side of the business, uh, to build software and use AI in a way where it helps the engineers sift through these reams and reams of data, which is continuing to gather with new drilling activity. It just continues to gather more and more steam and the, the task of analyzing becomes bigger and bigger. So we're trying to use machines and algorithms uh, and software to make it easier for engineers to interpret the data and therefore make best possible decisions uh, uh, going forward. So, so if you think if you think about what you just said in sort of broad brush terms, and and I think probably our audience knows what what the task is in any oil and gas business, but especially in the shale business, is you drill lots of wells because the characteristics of shale uh, oil and gas production is are different than the characteristic of traditional oil and gas wells, where you you drill once and the production state is at a fixed level, call it 100, and it slowly declines over decades from 100 to not zero, but to a, a number 10, but over many, many decades, where shale wells produce an awful lot quickly and then decline rapidly. So what you're doing is drilling the next well. So to your point, the planning process, rather than rather than being once every decade, uh, can be once every month. I mean, you can be at a very high velocity of planning. Planning is complicated for anything in the mechanical, physical world. So you're taking, and I'm putting words in your mouth, weeks and months of planning and millions of dollars of direct costs and compressing it into days, maybe out, I mean, you, uh, it'd be, we go from weeks and months to days. You don't have to be an economist to know that's profoundly productive if it's, if, if it in fact achieves that, right? If we go from millions of dollars to a tenth, maybe less than that, a fra- tiny fraction of the direct and implied costs. And we increase the velocity. I mean, we create the opportunity to pick up the pace at which we drill uh, compared to any other time in history, which is sort of another unique thing about both the shale fields and applying software to it. If, if I'm getting this, this framework right, putting put words in the mouth of your, of your software. Yeah, I think that's fair, Mark. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, what I what I learned when I worked for an operator, I worked for an operator that was running uh, $3 billion a year into one asset. They had 20 rigs going at one time. Uh, the amount of capital being deployed on a weekly basis, when, when the decisions were made, where do we move the rigs next? And then you have, um, you can imagine monumental pressure uh, of that schedule. So you can't have an idle rig. You can't have idle crews. You have to send them somewhere. So the wells are going to be drilled. They're under contract. The rigs are under, it's all of the things are happening. Uh, so you have, you have to make the decision. So the pressure is intense in, in that environment. Uh, and what, what I found often got lost uh, in, in the shuffle was, wait a minute, what, what are we doing to support the allocation of 30 to $50 million in capital, like in a Monday meeting every week? What are we doing? How, how are we? We're, are we relying on averages, you know, area averages, uh, which is really what the industry standard of the type curve, that's what it is. In most cases, it's not tuned uh, very specifically for any one well, yet we're making a $50 million decision for a pad based on what we expect a well drilled in the area to produce. So to me, the, the, the pace required the really begged for it for automation and, and it begged for a decision advisor machine that could help us sift through all the data and, and make the best possible decision and actually actually optimize uh, the, the design of, of what you're about to drill before you do it uh, and, and keep up with the pace. Um, now, the, the, pace, the pace in oil and gas drilling goes up and it goes down as, as That's for sure. the, market, the market ebbs and flows. You know, right now, everyone is begging for it to go up. Uh, yeah, a, they're begging for a tsunami, but yeah. <laughs> they're begging for it to go up at the same at the same time. That the pressure from the investor community in oil and gas is also intense to re- return seventy five cents of every dollar made, uh, and the best way to do that is not to just invest every dollar in drilling. So it's a, it's a tough. That's another whole other tough problem on the on that's the economic side. Sure. But 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 your your point your point is well taken. Uh, this. 
advisor machines, as I call them, which is really what what we what we build, uh, helps helps the users ultimately sift through the data instead of creating one scenario once a year in a capital allocation or planning process. You're able to create hundreds of scenarios every month. Uh, so the difference in scale is staggering, uh, and, and that's really what the advisor machine does, right? It allows you to attach to that scale and allow any team of a certain size, you know, to analyze uh, 10, 20, 400% more, depending on, on what their appetite is, to, you know, to do it. Well, so you're describing what, and again, I, I get to be high level and simplistic because I don't have to build anything like you do. So this is... This, this is the language which is not typically used in the oil and gas business, but it's this is the same idea as precision medicine has. Uh, you can do a lot of things with averages. Human beings are all very similar. <laughs> we have two arms, two, two eyes, a nose, and a mouth kind of thing. But the there's tremendous differences in the circumstance of a specific people, it's where, they're, where they're located at different times. So we bring data analysis and an advisory capacity to add precision medicine to to do a better job under pressure, do it fast. It's the same. And, and I think a lot of people think that the rock, rock is rock, right? It just looks like dirt. But as you know, uh, having been on the front lines of this, there's a tremendous amount of variability, both in terms of the geology and the geophysics, in terms of the machines. And so all, the, all those variables, doesn't, don't, it doesn't mean that under pressure, if you didn't have the information, drill a well, it's not going to work. It's, but it may not work optimally. I see your... When you, when, you, when you begin to add precision knowledge, not necessarily the precision in the sense of the diameter of a drill bit, but precision knowledge at velocity, it's pretty game-changing. But the, and, and, I, and I think the challenge, and you should, you've been on both sides of this, offering new technology, software, to a big industry with high capital costs, high consequence. Not much different than the, than the healthcare industry, frankly, in the same sense. You, you face resistance in bringing the new technology in. And the resistance is not unreasonable, right? Stakes are high. So what you're facing uh, and have faced since you founded your company is, all right, sounds good, uh, makes sense, doesn't work, right? This is, this is always in the, in the minds of the, uh, the user. Uh, does it do something that, that's materially better for me? So I think you're now at a point where we know that you can answer that question which is why I think we're at a tipping point. 10 years ago, you couldn't answer that question. You, you believed it would work. So now uh, you've got use cases, you've got, uh, and, and you're not alone, let's be clear. You know, Novi Labs, I think, I'm biased, is a leader in this, uh, le this leading edge of bringing AI and precision decisions to the oil and gas fields. And, and everyone has figured out that this needs to be done, but there's only a handful that are, are, that are doing it well. Again, like, yeah, this is credit to you, but it's like every other new feature in the toolkit of an industry. Uh, mm -hmm. There's the leading edge people who dare to try it, and you get customers who are willing to try it, and then sort of the dam breaks. Everybody wants to do it. Where do you see we are uh, technologically? We know where we are geopolitically. People, there's a big debate going on about more more drilling versus more wind and solar. I've gone on record. We need both. So let's put that aside. On the, but where are we in terms of the technological tipping point for, for the probability of adoption of what, what, what I'm calling precision drilling, but what you are properly calling is, is um, the advisory toolkit, the amplification of a high-velocity advisor. Are we, are we now on the cusp of the classic inflection, do you think? Yeah, I think, I think the, uh, the acceptance of the advisor machine as I'm calling it, is is in, certainly in, increasing. I mean, we've seen we've seen direct uh, evidence of that. Our business is growing. It wouldn't grow uh, if, if, <laughs> right. if the advisor machine uh, what wasn't achieving uh, higher levels of acceptance. Um, there's there's a lingering question about who builds the advisor machine, or do I outsource it? You know, to a company like Novi, who's who's already built it and de-risked it in a lot of ways. Uh, that that's always a complicated, a complex question because it in, it involves you know human beings with biases and people that have jobs that feel maybe may feel threatened by machines uh, as opposed to looking at them as useful tools. Uh, so I think I think the advisor machine tipping point is happening now, uh, and 
It's interesting because it's coupled with what I think is the next generation of the advisor machine, which is the automated advisor machine. Um, so if you think about, I mentioned this earlier, but if you think about the pressure uh, that the average uh, oil and gas company is under to produce, uh, to return cash to shareholders, it's an immense pressure uh, that, is, that has evolved some, somewhat in response to the proliferation of capital investment in alternative energy. And some Perfect. of that money is being substituted away from traditional E&P. And some of it the industry deserved in, in some ways because they were not able to consistently deliver returns. Sure. Right? The, sure. Sure. the stock so returns were up and down and the cash yeah. cash returns were terrible. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of self-affected <laughs> wounds in, in every yeah. business. <laughs> For, especially a, a capital intense business. But, but I think the, the industry's response uh, is okay. We need we need to uh, we need to be able to do uh, this the process of selecting drilling locations, optimizing the designs of the wells. We just don't have it's no longer an option for us. We don't have enough people to do right. this in a manual right. way, especially especially if you're operating with any kind of scale. You know, any kind of rig program north of two, uh, you're, you're spending a lot of money and and you don't have a lot of people, and that's. Somewhat in response to this GNA pressure that's been mounting and mounting, and I think will continue uh, uh, to mount. It's one of the reasons why n- nobody is running around saying, "Okay, we're going to jack production by twenty five percent." I mean, part of that's limited by supply issues and other th- other constraints, but a lot of it's limited by the demand from investors to to get cash returns. So, part of the way you deliver cash returns is is reducing GNA, uh, and you need. You can't cut the amount of people expect the same result unless you replace some of that labor with with an advisor machine. The interesting evolution. Uh, I, I, one of the things I'm observing that's happening right now is we have we have this sort of increased acceptance of the advisor machine necessitated necessitated by this demand for reduced GNA, uh, and that's coupled with some companies are are asking us now for the automated advisor machine, which is. Okay, it's nice that I can create my own drilling scenario. I can lay out well sticks on a map, and I can get uh, forecasts in an automated way that are driven by data. That's all great. But what I'd like for you to do for me is you use the machine to lay out all the possible ways that I might drill up a given piece of acreage. Let the machine do that. I don't want to do that anymore either. Let the machine do that, and let the machine generate every scenario that's feasible, and then let me... Uh, pick from the options that the machine has generated. So the concept of the ad- advisor or assistant now evolves to the automated advisory assistant, right? So we're, right. we're just simply using the machine to fill in all the scenarios uh, and, and then hoping that still, you, you know, the engineering teams, of course, planning teams, of course, are going to look through that data. But now, now they've got thousands of scenarios that that have been generated by the machine and they can sift through the data and say, okay, well, I need to grow production by 1% and I need to, um, let's just say it's one to 10% or whatever the number, whatever the range is. And and, and Uh, keep in mind, uh, I think it's important for listeners to understand in the oil and gas business, growing production with the same capital by one to 10% is monstrous profit generator because it all flows to the bottom line, but go ahead. So you've been, you, you know, you got in your head, Grow at one to ten percent. You use the automated advisor machine, but there's people. Here's the key, John, to interrupt you. You keep you keep you've said the right thing, and the words that are important is that some people are afraid machines are replacing people. We all know that we have a shortage of skills at all levels of the workforce, from from the front line on the rigs all the way up into the back office with the petroleum engineers. We, the shortage is growing, not shrinking. The only way you can expand production at all is to amplify your workforce with with machines of both physical robots, if you like, which is a different subject, but also the advisory machine. And of course, you use the same language. There's a reason you're using the language machine, because in most people's head, a machine is a piece of hardware, right? But what you have is a piece of software that resides in a machine called a computer, but that that's you know you you and I know all engineers know scientists know that that's that fits the classic definition of a machine. We want it to be, we want it to be autonomous as much as possible to advise us. Uh, but th- let me let me break to this. this. There's two things that come to mind, and when I've talked to people, you 
who are not in the oil and gas industry, which is, let's just stipulate, what, 99.999% of the country? There's <laughs> 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 the number of human beings that are physically in the oil and gas industry. Well, let's rephrase that. I guess from an employment perspective, it's probably uh, a whole five percentage point. So 95% of the country. Uh, they're sometimes a little shocked that this is, hasn't already happened. I think in a lot of people's heads, the class of advisory machine that you have, like in Google Maps, which is an advisory machine, uh, looks easy to use. It was very complex to build initially, far easier field to create an advisory machine in than your field. But it's sort of this innate assumption that that's already there for oil and gas. So the, the uh, Google mapping, if, if you like, of all the complexities for mapping out how to place and drill wells is just now becoming possible. That's essentially the tipping point. And so we, you know, and I know why, but I want to, I want to beat this, this theme to death. Why now? Right. We wanted Google maps for placement of how, you know, where to map out, where to put wells and drill for a long time. Now you can do it, but why can we do it now? I mean, yeah, you're brilliant and your team is brilliant, but why why is it now possible to do this? I, I think uh, it, it's a natural response uh, to to the GNA pressure that I mentioned earlier. You just kind of have to do more with less. It's interesting uh, among our customer base, we have these sort of hesitant uh, adopters where you know this this was kind of an a, an executive recognized this is the way things are going. We, we need to we need to bring in the best company. Uh, that can help us build an advisory machine because I I'm I have to deal with all of, all of these uh, issues relating to GNA and everything else. Uh, so there, you know, there hasn't like been a mass layoff that's that's happened here, nor nor is one anticipated. It's kind of right. like it's kind of like as lean as it can get and still run these things and still make the decisions. Uh, in, in my view, so it's not about getting more leanness; it's about inc- improving the quality of decisions. So. Uh, the key to improving the quality of decisions is to improve the quantity of scenarios that you're looking at, right? So the natural, the natural kind of uh, pressure is coming. Started with the GNA. The response to that, especially in 2020, was to reduce staff. That did happen, right? Yep. But that was just because they had to survive, uh, and and you know they they were cut capital to nothing, reduced staff as much as they could. Well, what we're seeing is there's been an uptick in activity, but very little increase. I mean, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you look at the upstream employment, particularly in North America, production is going like, you know, up, right? Fairly substantially. It's recovered uh, and it's record pace now, uh, as, as was, as has been pointed out by numerous politicians. It is record pace in in the U.S. Uh, so that, so the production is recovered. Uh, but what hasn't recovered is the employment. So now you've got a lot less people available to make the decisions and you have mounting pressure of the rig schedule, like I mentioned at the very beginning, yeah. uh, because there's more, more activity going on. And these and people in the jobs are kind of like, what I, I need something. I gotta have something that helps yeah. me make better decisions. Uh so it, it's it's I our thesis is simple. And an, an advisor machine improves the quantity and quality of the analysis that you can do with a given size team. Right. Of course, and, and of course, your your advisory machine is resident in the cloud. Mm-hmm. It's not resident uh, on site, although you, one can make, and, and a lot of our audience will know this, but one can have the physical machines uh, on site if there's a security reason or as other things are in country, but it's still operationally a cloud, whether the cloud's a remote cloud or 100 feet away cloud. It's a cloud function as opposed to a mainframe or handheld function. And that, that cloudification, to, to make up a, a word, of this compute function where your advisory machine lives gives you, like everybody else, whether it's those doing it for retail or Google Maps, it g- gives you the ability to scale, uh, unlike any time in, in software history. I mean, you, you just follow the, and some people may have heard this phrase, the elastic cloud, right? The elastic cloud just means you get more resources if you need them, both in terms of storage, storing stuff, but in terms of actual computing horsepower. And this, you know, I've looked across these companies and companies like yours, and it's been pretty clear that we've moved from being amazed by it to simply taking it for granted. It's it's just, a, it's a great tool. It's like taking the light 
for granted when you flip the switch. It's, I, I just, I don't even think about it. Flip the switch. I got light, go to work. We, we were amazed at that a century ago. We have good reason not to be amazed by it. So the utility function of the cloud, in, at least in my mind, but for that, you'd, you'd still be, you know, trying to hire lots of people and buy a mainframe. And that would mean hiring more people to operate it, all those, that whole trajectory. So it seems like this is uh, the political pressure, the geopolitical pressure, the practical reality, you can't hire people fast enough right now. There aren't enough people to hire, even if companies wanted to do it. So I suspect what you're seeing is a flip over. Remember when we first met, you talked about the point you made earlier that selling software that amplified humans, or in fact, allowed you to fire humans, was a huge impediment to making the pitch because the people you were selling your product to, the software, the uh, advisory machine, were the people who thought they were going to lose their job because of the machine. Whereas now it feels like you're, you're seeing them at completely flipped. I need, I need help as opposed to I'm worried about being laid off. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would completely agree, agree with that. And, it, you know, the, the industry's response to the various shocks that have happened in the last seven or eight years, uh, there's probably been four, four major shocks, uh, some induced by COVID, some induced by, you know, GNA pressures. Some of them are just, uh, are, are, uh, f- foreign, foreign governments, uh, playing, playing games with their production such that it impacts global demand and supply or supply. Uh, demand is what it is, but but supply and 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 they're you know so there's all the reasons why these shocks have happened and all the response the responses have kind of fettered through and I I just there are there are still some oil and gas companies that could probably could probably uh, reduce GNA further, but I don't I don't really observe I don't go to any more meetings and there's 30 people in the room and and all <laughs> of them are you know seek, seeking to lampoon the machine so that in in service to their own potential self-interest, right? I, I don't, I, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, most of the meetings we go to now are there's three or four people and they're all like, how, to, to show me how this thing, the machine can help me because I, I need help. Uh, and it, it's a, just a, it's a, it's a sea change, a shift change, if you will, whatever you want to call it. Um, driven by all these events that have happened the last seven or eight years. And, and now people are kind of like, okay, we're at, we're at bottom levels for, for, uh, for, where we're how productive we can be with current tools. We sure. need better tools to become more productive. And advisor machines, I think, are what what fills in the gap. Uh, this for- is this is a perfect note to wrap on, John, because you know uh, you don't know this, but I'll send it to you. My, the last piece I wrote about robots, service bots, not not the physical bots, not the welding machines on production lines for cars, but you've built a service bot. It's an advisory machine, and and I. I believe it's the case intuitively and the data show, but you're living the front lines of exactly that. These are, these are co cobots or collaborative robots, whether they're uh, virtual or physical and the market's ready. The world needs it. It's not, it's the old dystopian uh, that robots, both physical and virtual uh, are eliminating work. It's exact, exactly the polar opposite. This is, Congratulations uh, on being where you are, and thanks thanks for uh, helping illuminate some of the realities of being on the front line of what I, as you know, I believe, and obviously you do because you started a company around this, is a, uh, a a tipping point in the sort of the core characteristics of how we operate industrial in the industrial environment, and it's extraordinarily optimistic for the future for productivity, for cutting inflation, for adding for adding efficiencies at, at both environmental and and economic. So, thank you, John. Great to have you on. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Great to talk to you again. Well, these were interesting conversations we've had today, and uh, I want to remind everybody of a truism I keep saying, and I'll keep saying it. <laughs> because it's what I've said in my book. The biggest change in our world in the last two decades has been the advent of the cloud in providing software-centric capabilities to entrepreneurs like the two we've talked to. It's changing and will continue to and accelerate the change in how we can be more productive in every area, and especially in including these days in energy fields. You know, uh, some of you may remember many uh, decades ago, before Y2K, uh, the famous expression, 
was that we could see computers everywhere except in the productivity statistics. You could modify that phrase today and replace computers with artificial intelligence or robots and ask the same question. We have seen an incredible increase in productivity from computers over the last two decades. We're about to see incredible increases in productivity from both virtual and physical robots. The technology is finally arriving. It'll bring efficiencies all across the landscape. We'll see, we see the indicators of the future, not in what Exxon is doing, uh, frankly, while that's important, or Chevron or Pioneer, but in what the lesser known entrepreneurs are doing, the kinds of companies like Nauticus Robotics and like Noby Labs. That's where we see the future. Those are the people you would want to have talked to 20 years ago to know where the shale revolution was coming from. That's why I'm talking to those kinds of people today. So with that, it's a wrap. I'm looking forward to see everybody in the next uh, episode of The Last Optimist. Thanks for joining. <laughs>